This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good morning and welcome to episode number 104 of Go To Grandma. I'm your go-to grandma, Kathy Buckworth, and this episode is airing originally on Saturday, August 5th, 2023 on Zoomer Radio. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. If you're a regular listener, I'm so glad you're back. You know our show is full of fun and facts for today's grandparents, and today's show is going to be one you're going to want to lock into. When Phyllis Taylor left her job of 30 years at a law firm in Toronto, she started volunteering at a local jail to educate the weary, read to the illiterate, and stop the bleeding. She counseled and spoke with hundreds of inmates. When the pandemic hit in 2020, Phyllis put down her makeup and picked up a pen and started writing about her experiences. Today, she's on the show to talk about her book, The Prison Lady, and the life lessons she gained through counseling the marginalized, and how Oprah played a key part in her journey. A fascinating story from a fabulous grandma. We have spoken about ageism on this show before and the ways in which it affects our lives, both personally and professionally. There is no question that ageism manifests itself against women in our society much more harshly than it does men. In 2021, Dr. Paula Rashan of Women's College Hospital founded the Women's Age Lab to more fully address the needs and understanding of gendered ageism. She's on the show today to tell me what the Women's Age Lab mission is and why the issue of gendered ageism is so important and what we can do to help combat it. Have you ever thought about ditching the city and moving away to a more rural setting? For some families, the family farm has represented this idyllic lifestyle. But what are the logistics and implications of running and supporting a family farm from a multi-generational perspective? Our Take 5 with RBC interview takes a look at what's involved. It's an information-packed show today, and I can't wait to get started. My chat with the prison lady, Phyllis Taylor, is up first. I'm Kathy Buckworth, and you're listening to Go To Grandma. For the past 10 years, Phyllis Taylor has been a certified life and mediation coach with the Government of Ontario. Previously, she taught technology at an international law firm for 20 years. She studied journalism at Ryerson University, adult education and counselling at George Brown College, and philosophy at the University of Toronto. Phyllis's passion is to show love and respect to marginalized people while guiding them on their healing journeys. Good morning, Phyllis Taylor. Thanks so much for being on GoToGrandma this morning. Good morning, Kathy. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I know that you're a grandma, and we can talk about that, but what I really want to talk to you is obviously your experiences in the prison system yeah. and your book, The Prison Lady. Yeah. Now, you had sent me a little note before we set up this interview, and I just want to read it. This is why I think you wrote the book. The passion that I developed for prison inmates heals my flaws and deepens my humanity. The stories and lessons in The Prison Lady are not an accident. They are meant to awaken the soul and gently poke one's forward-thinking device. My goal was to enlighten, entertain, and provide readers with a better understanding of prison life and of prisoners. And it does that. It's a great book, Phyllis. Thank you, Kathy. <laughs> you reminded me. 
I need to start from the beginning, though. I need to understand what inspired you to volunteer in, I think it was five prisons. Yes. So I had been working in a an international prestigious Toronto downtown law firm. I was working there for 30 years. It was a job that I loved. It defined me. And I was just thinking I was it. I just loved the position. After 30 years, I was suddenly and shockingly terminated. Of course, there's a story to everything. But you're actually wondering why I wrote the book, what inspired me to write the book? Yes, I'm inspiring you to write the book and also what inspired you to get into the prison system in the first place. So after I was terminated from my law firm, The next thing that happened was, well, of course, I was devastated. It was shocking. I was escorted out of the building with a cardboard box in a humiliating walk of shame. And the next morning, I woke up, I made the bed, and I thought, what the heck am I going to do with Mm -hmm. my life? And it was then that my friend Linda called and said, we're going to see Oprah, and you're coming with it. I was like, no, no, I don't think so. I just don't know what I want to do with the rest of my life, and I think Oprah's not part of it. Well, long story short, I escorted her down to see Oprah. And there were thousands, thousands of Oprah-inspired folks at that life class in Toronto, going back about 13, 14 years now, because I've been working in the prison system for over a decade. And at Oprah, they had Skyped in six women from a penitentiary in Indiana, six women, And I was mesmerized because of my very harsh and humble childhood and being abused by my dad and actually locked away for a year. I think I had tremendous empathy and always a keen interest in prison life. But when I saw these these ladies being Skyped in, I was fixated on them. And when Bishop T.D. Jakes got up to speak, and I recall, as if it were yesterday, he was talking about gratitude. And I saw their light bulbs going off with these women. And I literally lunged from my chair and screamed out. It was a eureka moment. (laughs) I was, holy God, that's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And uh, I went home, went to sleep, got up the next morning and called every prison that I thought I could travel to within about a 20-kilometer radius. And uh, it was a couple of weeks later that I got my first call and ended up, as you say, in, in five Ontario prisons. And you tell the story in the book of how those first visits went and what you were able to do and the motivation that you were able to give these prisoners. So you did that. And then what happens? The pandemic. Of course, that happened to everybody, but it happened to you. And that's when you say you put down your makeup and picked up a pen. Tell me about that. Right. So I was, as you say, I was a motivational speaker and a life coach in five of the prisons. And it was just the most exciting and rewarding opportunity of ever. And I would always be a storyteller. I'm, I'm actually, and part of my story, a unique part of my story is from a very early age, and because of my dad, I was forced into competitive public speaking. Mm. And so I'm a storyteller. I'm telling all my friends every story, of course, not naming names, not even necessarily naming the particular prison, although at times I would, but telling them these stories about the awakening that these men and women would have under my watch. And it was always said, well, why don't you just write a book? No, I don't have time to write a book. I don't think so until COVID hit. And then I continued my social life on a park bench with a couple of gals. And again, I was telling the story. One of the gals piped up and said, oh, my God, you've got to write a book. And I said, 
no, I don't think so. I think not. Well, that evening I went home and began to write because it made sense. It just made sense. Life came to a halt. And as you say, I put down my pen. I put down my makeup and picked up my pen and never stopped writing for a solid year and a half. That's how that happened. In all your time spent in the prisons, Phyllis, were you ever afraid or did you ever have fear from a prisoner? No, I never, ever had fear. I'll tell you, there was one incident. But, you know, Kathy, when you walk into an establishment, a space, an auditorium, anywhere, even the lunch table, and you treat people with respect and kindness and give them some dignity and validate them, you are loved, not feared, not hated. I felt loved. I felt supported. I felt validated. It was just an amazing, amazing opportunity every single day. But there was one young boy who was not cooperating. I have one rule in the prison, and that is I need to see the whites of everyone's eyes. So no one sits behind me, no one sits beside me, and everybody comes into what I call the circle. At the height of the attendance, I had about 100 prisoners in the men's prison. Yeah, a large audience, actually the largest audience in Ontario, I was told. And there was one young boy who comes to mind, his name was Hudson, and he refused to bring his chair into the, into the circle. In fact, he was just leaning back on the, lap, the hind two legs of the chair, and I was afraid he was going to get hurt. He wouldn't come into the circle, and when I approached him on the second time, gently and respectfully asking him if he could please come into the circle, because that's a hard rule that I have, he actually lunged from his chair threw it up against the wall, and it reverberated back against me. And at that point, five prisoners took over. Three carried him out in coffin style, and two of them escorted me to a chair and tried to settle me down. And that's when I knew for sure that I was safe, Hmm. that I would always be safe, and that they would protect me. So interesting. And the stories that you tell in the book, I encourage everyone to pick up a copy. It is subtitled True Stories and Life Lessons from Both Sides of the Bars. I think you learned, you would say that you learned as much from them as as they did from you. And we can find this book wherever books are sold, of course, on Amazon, etc. And we can find you, Phyllis, on social media on Facebook. Is that right? Still sharing some stories. Yes, always. Uh, The title of the book is actually The Prison Lady. Mm -hmm. The Prison Lady. And then, of course, you you mentioned the subtitle. But yes, I'm on Facebook and everywhere where people are found. Well, fascinating subject. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. And I know that the inmates as well as their families and anyone who's reading this is going to get inspired by you. And thank you so much for what you do. Thank you, Kathy. It's been an absolute pleasure this morning. Dr. Paula Rashawn is founding director of Women's Age Lab, a geriatrician and senior scientist at Women's College Hospital and ICES. Dr. Rashawn is a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Good morning, Dr. Rashawn. Thank you so much for being on GoToGrandma this morning. Pleasure to be here. I'm going to start by reading out the mission statement of the Women's Age Lab, and then we're going to get into some of the details. So your mission is to improve the lives of older women by using science to transform care and practice and drive health system and social change. This is a pretty big mission, Dr. Rashawn. So I wonder if you can give us a bit of background about the Women's Age Lab and why you founded it. Thank you. Yeah, it's to the best of our knowledge the first and the only research center that's actually focusing on older women. And um, the reason that we we started this was because 
You know, I think um, issues related to older women are so important, and it's one where there's, you know, just such a big gap. And when we went out and talked to people, all sorts of people, we learned about more and more about why it's important to think about women and to think about aging and how this is something uh, that's really missed out. So this is something that we took on and certainly has built on, you know, research that we've been doing for many years, you know, focusing on older adults and increasingly recognizing the importance to think about women. So it was just a perfect opportunity. Yeah, and I think, you know, I read it on your website um, about sort of in the past, a lot of the research has been sort of putting older people as well as men and women and more or less a homogenous group. And it's, it's not true, is it? It's not true that we act as a homogenous group. No, and I think you see that all the time. When you hear people talking about older people, it's as if, you know, somebody who's you know, just turned 65 is the same as somebody who's, you know, over 95, and that women and men are the same. And, you know, it's clear that there's many different things that are are different and that we need to think about. And, you know, it's huge when you think of all, all the different uh, kinds of ways that that could impact your health. So when we were thinking about uh, this and, and planning a Women's Age Lab, we realized that we couldn't take on everything. We had to actually focus on particular areas Makes sense. And, you know, when we get into some of the language around what you discovered, gendered ageism is a term that I see used. And what is gendered ageism and and what are some of its impacts? So when we were thinking about areas that were important uh, when we're talking about aging and talking about women in particular, you know, gendered ageism was one that just kept coming up. And I would say that, you know, we've sort of decided that this is an issue that kind of underpins, in a way, almost everything that we do and something that we need to think about and don't often think about. So to get to your question, you know, what is gendered ageism? You've heard a lot about perhaps ageism, which is discrimination based on your age, but probably not so much about the gender component, which is discrimination, you know, based on your sex. And when we talk about gendered ageism, it's basically when the two things come together, when somebody has experienced discrimination not only based on their age, but also based on their sex. And this is something that, in a way, kind of doubly impacts women, but that isn't often recognized. Exactly. So some of the impacts that we would sort of physically see in the world of gendered ageism, could you give me some examples of that? Yeah, so there's things that, you know, maybe people are becoming more aware of now. But, for example, something as simple as gray hair. Mm-hmm. You know, we've heard lots about that. For men, you know, sometimes that's considered to be something distinguished. For women, maybe not so much. And that may relate to, you know, why, for example, women are more likely to highlight or color their hair or something like that to sort of to disguise the gray, so to speak. So these these things, you know, that may impact all older people may have different impacts on women than on men. And I think we see that across, as you mentioned, sort of the gray hair that comes across in the professional world too, doesn't it? Uh, Yes, it does. I mean, and that, you know, things like that may impact how you're perceived at work and, um, you know, just attitudes that, stereotypes that you need to really be looked at and addressed. I have a question for you. When the gray hair during the pandemic and a lot of women were growing out their hair and gray hair became sort of not a battle cry, but sort of a movement. And what were your thoughts on on that when that was happening? Well, I think it's great because I think people addressed it head on and took it on and challenged it. And I think, you know, as a result of that, I think you're starting to see a lot more people 
you know, taking gray hair and just embracing it and making it something that's a real statement. You know, people of all ages. And so I think that's uh, that's something that's really positive. One of the things that I looked at when I was looking through your research was the impact financially of gendered Asian. And in particular, women are more likely to be caregivers. They're more likely maybe to have stayed at home with the kids or taken a lesser career than the men. And so it affects a lot of things because of that, doesn't it? Pension, et cetera. That is so true. And, you know, it's when you start thinking about it, it underpins, as I say, so many things, even if you think they're not necessarily related. But the, the issue about the pension gap is one that I also don't think people really think about, and they should. So, for example, if you took someone like, you know, my mom, when she was, you know, in the workforce or just about to be in the workforce, most of her her friends, for example, a lot of them didn't really want to go on and have a career or weren't encouraged to have a career. They may not have had, you know, the same kind of encouragement to pursue higher education. That wasn't really sort of what was expected at that time. You know, hopefully that has changed a great deal. But when people like her entered the workforce, uh, you know, they uh, often had lower paying jobs. Uh, They would take time off uh, for caregiving, which people still do for Mm -hmm. childbearing. And, you know, as they went, you know, if they were able to come back in their career, may be expected and had, you know, taken off time to care for older family members or relatives or people like that. And at the end of the day, of those people who were in the workforce and of those people who were in jobs that, you know, had pensions associated with them, which may be less likely for women overall, you know, they had, you know, they ended up with pensions that were less than their male counterparts. And when people have looked at this internationally, you know, it's an issue that's impacted people from many different countries. And, you know, overall, they say that women have pensions that are 26% less than men. Wow. So, you know, what does that mean? Does that matter? But it does, because it then translates into, you know, we know that women tend to live longer than men. So basically, women are living longer with less. And maybe it's harder to pay for things that maybe are non-insured services or not fully insured services that might help uh, with your health. You know, things like, for example, hearing aids are expensive and, you know, you might need to purchase that or glasses are, you know, expensive and you may need those. I think many of us can relate to that kind of thing. Um, But it's also just, you know, food is expensive and housing is expensive. And, um, you know, these are all the things that, you know, people need. And it can tie back to things that we don't necessarily think about, but maybe things like discrimination based on not only your, your sex and but also your age, you know, playing into this. Well, the, the tentacles are far-reaching, obviously, and I wish we had more time to get into it. I love the work that you're doing at the Women's Age Lab, and if people want to find more about it, they can go to womensresearch.ca slash womens-age-lab. Thank you so much, Dr. Rashawn, for your time this morning. Thank you. As the director for the professional practice group at RBC Royal Trust, Donna Graham leads multiple teams that provide technical guidance for trust and estate matters, both in-house and across RBC Wealth Management Canada. Good morning, Donna. Thanks so much for being part of our Take 5 with RBC interview series. Thank you for having me, Kathy. Interesting topic today. We are going to be speaking about passing the family farm down to the next generation. So, Donna, tell me, why is the transfer of the family farm to the next generation becoming such a pressing issue? 
Well, with over 60% of our farmers being 55 years of age or older, the Canadian agriculture industry is it's really in a state of transition right now. And unfortunately, only about 12 to 13% of our farmers actually have written succession plans in place. And believe it or not, that's, that's a sharp increase from the last census in 2016. So it looks like COVID and the realities of our aging population have really shown the necessity and the realities if you don't have a succession plan in place. So specific to farmers, you know, they're facing big decisions about the future of their retirement, their farms, and their farming operations in general. And the reality is that these need to be addressed sooner rather than later because you need to have time to have the necessary conversations with your partners, your family. You need to then form the succession plan with your advisors and then start implementation. So succession planning has to be viewed as a process rather than a single event, and that process can actually take years. And one of the benefits of starting this early um, while they're in this age category is that you can actually take advantage of farm-specific tax exemptions and deferrals. And just to show how pressing of an issue this has become, the Ontario government actually released a very detailed and substantial farm succession planning guide, which I highly recommend. And as you mentioned, many farmers are reaching retirement age. A big consideration for many farmers will be whether they have a successor to transfer the farm to, how it will happen. What should people keep in mind if they are planning to pass down their family farm? There are a few things to keep in mind, Um, one of which is the farm is not necessarily just a business asset. It can be a home, and it can be a home to multiple generations. So that factor needs to be considered when you're, you're forming your succession plan. In addition, if you have multiple children that intend to inherit and profit off of the farm, the viability of whether the farm can actually support multiple families needs to be considered. Is, is that actually something that can happen? Um, and that's something you would discuss with your advisors pretty early on in the process. Also, if the intention is for your farm to stay in the family, you should talk to your advisors about ways to protect your family legacy, whether it means implementing techniques that involved prenuptial agreements to protect the farm in the event of divorce, shareholder agreements, and, you know, that will all really depend on how your business is structured or will be structured. And another consideration is, you know, what income is required to support yourself during your retirement? Does that farm business earn enough income annually such that it can fund both your retirement while meeting business-related expenses? Or is there a need for you to start considering the investment of profits outside of the farm rather than putting the profit back into the farm? So I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's important to start those discussions now to plan for those. So farming is a capital-intensive business. Without a lot of liquidity, this can make it challenging to provide for non-farming children through a will while also passing on a viable operation for the farming children. What are some of the options for balancing the estate? That's a great question, and and that might be one of the biggest challenges a farmer could face. How do you treat your children fairly when your largest asset is the farming business and your farming equipment, and then you have children that just have no interest in this this business? Mm -hmm. So the key here is to really strive for fairness rather than equality and start these conversations early, as I said before, so that you can manage expectations. So to answer your question, If a majority of your assets are the farm or farm-related equipment, you could consider obtaining life insurance that could pay out to the non-farming children upon your death. Or if you're planning to pass the farm or farm equipment through your estate, 
You could consider including clauses in your will that require the children inheriting those farm-related assets to pay a certain amount to the estate and use those funds to create some fairness between your heirs. You could also ensure that your retirement savings and investments go to the non-farming children after your passing. But if that is part of your succession plan, make sure that you're setting aside those sums now, both for your own financial well-being and then to provide that fairness. Such great information, such a big topic. Thank you so much for this today, Donna. If we want more information, of course, we can go to rbc.com slash Royal Trust. Thank you. It is said that no one truly knows a nation until one has been inside its jails. A nation should not be judged by how it treats its highest citizens, but its lowest ones. Nelson Mandela. Thank you to Phyllis for giving us a glimpse inside the Canadian prison system today. And thank you to Dr. Rashan for advancing the research and science which will help all of us as we strive to overcome the ubiquitous ageism which surrounds us. The more we all understand about each other and what motivates us, the better off we will all be, as these women clearly demonstrate. Next week on GoToGrandma, it's our final episode of Season 2. Things have changed so much since this show launched in August of 2021. Had we heard of ChatGPT, the Barbie movie, Threads? But as much as things have changed in the past two years, I'm going to go a bit further back with Julie Cole, co-founder of Mabel's Labels and one of the OG mommy bloggers. Remember mommy blogging? Now it's influencers and, of course, grandfluencers. Julie is going to take us back to the early days and talk about how things have changed in social media for brands and moms and grandmas. One thing that hasn't changed is our desire to connect with our grandkids right from the first day. Laura Bird knew this with her babies, and she started My Smart Hands, a company that teaches caregivers how to sign with their hearing babies. She's going to give us a primer on how we can communicate with our grandbabies in this effective and fun way, and how she still uses it today with her older kids. Our Take 5 with RBC interview takes a look at Roblox. Not sure what that is? You'll find out if you tune in next week. And not to fear, well, next week is the last episode of Season 2. Season 3 starts right away the week after with our usual mix of fun and factual guests and topics. Thank you so much for joining in today. I'm Kathy Buckworth, and I'm still, very happily, your go-to grandma. Enjoy your grand journey. Share your thoughts on this show with us. You can find Kathy on Instagram, at Kathy Buckworth, or email her, kathy at kathybuckworth.com. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.